Well, it's good to see you here this morning, whether you're a, a member, and of course, this is the summer, and so we've had that time of year where we've had people in and out, but it looks like we've got a lot here in today, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm happy to see some of these faces that I've been missing some in recent weeks. We also have several visitors here with us today, and, and whether you're a member or a visitor, I hope we can all leave here this morning uh, saying that it was good for us to been here to praise God and to spend this time together in fellowship and strengthening and encouraging each other. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd recommend, if you want to follow along, that you open it up to the 26th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we'll find the text that we want to work through together for a few minutes this morning. And just to plug a, a couple of things while you're turning there, one mentioned in our announcements and the other in, in the bulletin. Uh, one is our early bird singing, which Brother Taylor mentioned this afternoon at 5 o'clock. I know a lot of us have been coming for this since we started doing it on a monthly basis. If you haven't, I encourage you to be here. It's a great opportunity for us to, to learn some new songs, to sing some old ones that we don't sing that often, and uh, not only to improve our singing some, but also to just have this great opportunity to lift our voices together to God and to, to teach each other through our songs. The other is a gospel meeting that's coming up next week at the Barrett Station Congregation in Crosby. Uh, they're having services not only next Sunday, but then every night. But uh, Brother Troy James, who's the preacher there, I know some of you know him, Andre knows him, for instance, uh, He's asked that if we could to make a concerted effort to try to be there on Tuesday night. They'd like a different area church to come out there on every night if we can. So I'm going to be there. I know some others are, and I'd encourage you to try to make your way over there next Tuesday evening. But in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse number 36, we read in our text, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, that very name conjures a number of images in our minds, images of agony, of betrayal, but it's actually a beautiful place. Scientists have recently determined that the olive trees there, Gethsemane means oil press because of all the abundance of olive trees, fittingly, on the Mount of Olives. But those olive trees there today are almost a thousand years old. And because olive trees can grow back from the roots, that means genetically some of them might be the very same ones that Jesus prayed under that night in the garden. The parallel account that was read a few moments ago from Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse 39, tells us about it this way. Jesus went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. You see, being in the Garden of Gethsemane was not something that was unusual for Jesus. Evidently, when he was in Jerusalem, this was routinely where he went to pray. And so when Judas went looking for him, searching for him in order to hand him over to the temple establishment, he knew where he might find Jesus. He'd gone, as was his custom, as usual, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He had gone to his place of prayer. A recent survey from the Pew Forum 
indicates, and you might find this somewhat surprising, but it indicates that about three-quarters of all Americans indicate they pray at least semi-regularly. Now, some pray more and some pray less, but three-fourths of us say that we pray at least weekly. More than half of us claim that we pray daily. In fact, 20%, this is astonishing, 20% of self-identified agnostics say they pray regularly, including 9% who say they pray every day. Even a handful of atheists responded to this and said that they prayed regularly. Now, I'm not entirely clear on who agnostics and atheists are praying to, but they're praying by their own admission. You see, we have this innate need for prayer, even if we're not certain that anyone on the other end is listening. But as Christians, we know that God has offered us this tremendous source of strength and power that we have access to in prayer. And yet, even if we're praying weekly, even if we're praying daily, I'm convinced that too seldom do any of us really pray. In fact, if you're here in our Wednesday evening Bible class, we've been doing a series of lessons for several weeks now, looking at the prayer life of Jesus, trying to learn more about how we can pray, inspired by the disciples' question when they come to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, I want us to do something similar this morning and see what Jesus has to teach us about prayer from his time here in the garden. Let's, as it were, take a walk in the garden here with Jesus this morning. Hopefully God will help us to to realize the power of prayer that we can harness in our lives. Gethsemane was a place of prayer for Jesus, but it was more than that. For another thing, Gethsemane was also a place of privacy. Our text tells us that as he and his disciples reached the garden, that he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Most of us probably recall the setting here. This is after eating the Last Supper, a Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus and 11 of the apostles were on their way back to Bethany where he'd been staying with his friends. Judas is the one who's missing. He's not with them. He'd already left a little while earlier to go and to begin to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. As Jesus and the apostles are ascending the Mount of Olives, he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight of them behind. Then he takes the three of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, on with him deeper into the garden. And after asking them to watch and pray, Luke's gospel tells us that he withdrew. He went on about a stone's throw away and that he began to pray himself, alone there, pouring his heart out to God. I think that each of us can identify with that need can't we? There are times when we need to be alone with our Heavenly Father. When we are so sorrowful, so anxious like Jesus was that we need to pour our hearts out to Him. Go into our closets and pray in secret 
the way Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. There are times in our lives when we just need to be alone with God. That's what Jesus was experiencing here, and that's a very human emotion. I I hope that most of us can identify with that feeling of needing that, that intimacy with God. For Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane was also a place of great agony. Verse 38 says that he said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This was a time of intense anguish for the Lord because he knew precisely what was awaiting him in the morning, just a few hours from now. He knew about the illegal trial. He knew about the mocking. He knew about the scourger's flagellum. That's a Roman instrument of torture with a short wooden handle and multiple leather straps. We might call it something like a cat of nine tails. And each one of these was weighted down toward the end with bits of bone or metal that would absolutely rip a man's flesh apart. He knew about the crown of thorns that was going to be jammed down into his scalp. And of course, he knew most ominously about the cross. So all of this is weighing upon him as he's here in the garden. Is, is there any doubt that Jesus, as a man, as a human being, just as much as you are and as I am, that he was feeling the agony of all of this about to come upon him? John's gospel gives us some more detailed geographical information about this. He says as he was departing from the city and going up the Mount of Olives, he walked through the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was cut by a stream, the brook of Kidron. That day, the Passover, literally countless lambs had been killed, animals sacrificed so that their blood had run down from the Temple Mount and it ran into the brook of Kidron where it flowed away. So in other words, when Jesus crossed that stream that evening, it was running red with the blood of all of those lambs. Before too long, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would have his own blood spilled for the sins of humanity. So Luke's gospel, Luke goes into excruciating detail here. Luke says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a a rare but verified medical phenomenon. It's called hematidrosis. It occurs in moments of extreme stress when the capillaries that feed the sweat glands burst. And at times, people literally sweat blood. That must be what was occurring with Jesus here. Can you imagine that? His trepidation, his agony, his anguish is so intense that these vessels burst and he's literally sweating blood here as he engages in prayer. He's in agony. And yet, for Jesus... The garden at Gethsemane was also a place of submission. In verse 39, 
Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus completely submitted himself to God's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. I think a lot of times when we go to God in prayer, we say, Lord, this is what I want you to do. I need you to do this for me. We pray, my will be done. And I don't want to discourage that to a point. We need to feel free to approach God with whatever our our needs, our desires, our requests are, remembering that, that he's our heavenly father. Jesus reveals us him to us that way. So just like we would go to our earthly father and hopefully we feel free to ask him for whatever it is we need, we need to feel free to go to our heavenly father that way. And yet, those of you who are parents, you know that doing what's good for your children doesn't necessarily mean giving them whatever it is that they want. Sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you have to give them something else entirely. But too often in our prayers, it's all about us. Give me what I want. And if God doesn't give us what we want, what we think we need, well, then we're upset with him. We, we doubt him. But if our earthly parents give us good things, why shouldn't we trust that our heavenly Father is going to do good for us too? Jesus gives us a great example here. Unlike us, he was perfectly attuned to the will of the Father. And so he could pray, this is, this is what I want, if it's possible, if there's any way at all, because of that great agony, take this cup from me. But if there's no other way, not my will, but your will be done. For Jesus then, this garden was also a place of patience and understanding. In verse number 40, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, a lot of times we read things like this and we want to tut-tut the apostles. Oh, we wouldn't do that if we were there in that situation. Because, of course, we have the advantage of hindsight. But I think if we're honest, we have to sympathize with the apostles a little bit here. Consider this had been a really hard week. There had been on the first day of the week that triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem with all of the crowds coming out and hailing Jesus as if he were a conquering king, waving palm branches, shouting out the Hosanna to him. Then there had been that stressful moment when Jesus entered the temple and he cleansed it, when he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out and said that it's written, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers, a place of of revolution and plotting. And then, of course, in the aftermath of that, there had been this endless parade of religious leaders coming to question Jesus All of this building up to that night on the Passover when he'd not only spoken to them at length about many things, but he'd told them that one of them was going to betray him. He was going to die. So all of this is weighing on their mind. And now here they are. They've taken a walk outside the city to the Mount of Olives, up here the slopes of the mountain to the garden. It's probably after midnight at this point. 
They're beat. They're tired. Physically, spiritually, emotionally spent. And so Jesus asked them to watch and pray, and they want to. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They just can't do it. And so Jesus returns to them, and he finds them there sleeping. And you notice he doesn't fuss at them. He doesn't wag his finger. He does gently remind them of what they were supposed to be doing. But then he says to them, in that understanding, sympathetic way, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The point of all this is that similarly, one of the benefits of prayer should be that we become more patient with each other. You see, in prayer, among other things, we ought to be confessing our faults to God, our sins, asking for his forgiveness. We ought to be mindful of our own weak spots and praying that he'll strengthen us in our weaknesses. That awareness of our imperfections should make us a little bit more tolerant of the imperfections of others. We ought not to be so eager to point point out and pick out that speck of sawdust in our brother or sister's eye when we have, I always like to picture it like a big railroad tie running through our heads. You know, why do you see that speck when you have a beam in your eye, Jesus said? Prayer should make us more sensitive to that. We're not perfect. So in being reminded of our own faults, we should be a little more understanding of the faults of other people. And we not only need to be patient with others, but prayer should teach us to be patient in waiting upon God. Again, for the second time, Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Scripture teaches us that we ought to be persistent in our prayers. I think of something a a character in a movie once said. It's in the movie Rudy, and it's a Catholic priest there. I always thought this was profound. But praying is something that we do in our time. The answer is, come on God's time. They might not always come in what we consider to be a timely manner, but that doesn't mean that he's not listening or that he's insensitive to our request. We have to be persistent, like that widow in the parable Jesus tells, who went to that unjust judge and kept pleading, 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 pleading again and again for justice on her behalf. So in that same way, Jesus prays this prayer again and again, at least three different times. That's a great example for us, not to give up, to continue turning to God, continue pouring out our hearts to him. If prayer is going to be this source of power in our lives, there has to be some repetition. It has to be a constant practice for us. Finally, after all of this, Gethsemane was a place of strength and renewal for Jesus. In verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. He's ready. He's ready to meet what awaits him. And you think about what a change this is. Just a short time before, he'd been sorrowful even to death. Luke's gospel tells us, as we said, that he was quite literally sweating blood. His anguish was so great. 
And now here he is, ready to face what awaits him. How did that happen? Where did that renewed strength, where did that determination come from? It came from prayer. Luke's parallel account again tells us that as he was praying, an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. God strengthened him in response to his prayer. Now he was ready to face the cross. And we can go on and finish the story here briefly throughout the rest of the chapter. Even though we're done looking at Jesus' prayer, we can see what happens to him in the garden. We see his arrest in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Have you ever been betrayed by someone you loved deeply? Someone you cared about? Someone you trusted? If you have, then you can identify with the terrible storm of emotions Jesus must have been dealing with at that point. And yet, notice the way he responded to Judas. He said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He still calls him friend. Because even though Judas had turned his back on Jesus, Jesus never turned his back on him. Our text continues then that they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us that this was Peter, but we know that it was from John's account. And Jesus said to him, that is to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Luke said that angels came and strengthened him. Jesus said that he could call all of these legions of angels, thousands down to fight for him. Those who were standing there with him didn't see those angels, but they could see the effect, the courage, the determination that Jesus had after his prayer. In fact, John tells us in his account, chapter 18, that, verse 6, that when they came to Jesus, instead of rushing forward to grab him, they actually fell back away from him. The soldiers, the temple guard, they fell down to the ground. And yet, in spite of the fact that Jesus could have resisted, he submitted to them. After all, he just prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And when he'd surrendered, we read in verse number 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. We could continue with the aftermath of this on through his trial and to the cross, but I want us to stop here and consider briefly before we close two practical lessons, applications I want us to take from this time in the garden with Jesus this morning. The first one is that effective emergency prayer should be preceded by regular daily prayer. You think about Jesus. Now, here he is in the moment of crisis praying in the garden. 
but all four gospel accounts consistently present him as a man of prayer. Luke's gospel is a great example of this. You could just flip through it from the beginning, and I'm not going to mention all these, but just to sort of scratch the surface, Luke presents him praying at his baptism, chapter 3, verse 21. He prays before choosing the apostles, the twelve out of his disciples, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. He prays before feeding the 5,000, Luke chapter 9, verse 16. He prays on the mountaintop prior to his transfiguration, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Perhaps most famously in Luke's gospel, he prays even while on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus lived his life in this constant attitude of prayer. And so, when trouble came, at the moment of crisis, in the shadow of the cross, he was ready to pray. It's not something that he relied upon as a last resort. It's something that was part of the fabric of his life. But that's not the way we often use prayer, is it? We got that saying, when all else fails, read the directions, and we often treat prayer that way. Well, I've exhausted everything I could possibly do. I guess I'll pray about it now. But Jesus made regular prayer part of his life. We can't expect to rely on those emergency prayers if we haven't cultivated this habit of daily prayer. Or else, and I don't know if it's like this or not, but it could be that when we start to pray in those moments, God might say something like, well, who's that stranger calling? I don't ever hear from them. But if we cultivate regular prayer, when those emergencies arise, we'll be ready. Second big picture point I want us to take with us this morning is that prayer strengthens us to face our difficulties more than it changes our circumstances. Prayer changes us more than it changes things. Now, sometimes prayer does change circumstances. I believe that absolutely, unequivocally. I hope you do too. We've seen sick people who had no right or reason to otherwise get well because of prayer. I've seen that. I think some of you have seen that too. We've seen circumstances in our lives change for no other explanation than our prayers. So sometimes God does respond to our prayers by changing circumstances. But I think that Mostly, God uses prayer to change us. We have some examples of that in Scripture, too. Remember, the Apostle Paul had that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, some uh, terrible, physically painful condition. And he prayed to God, and he said, take this away from me. What did God say to him? No, I'm not going to do it. But I will give you the strength, the grace to be able to endure it. He changed Paul rather than taking away that thorn in the flesh. It's the same thing he does with Jesus here in the garden. Father, if it's possible, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. God says, I'm sorry, my son, but there is no other way. He doesn't change his circumstances, but he gives him the strength 
to be able to endure those circumstances. And the point is, sometimes, a lot of the time, God says that same thing to us. He won't change our circumstances the way that we want him to. But he'll give us that strength that we need. He'll stand there right alongside us through whatever it is that we're facing. There's an old poem written by that most prolific of poets, Anonymous, but I've seen it most frequently attributed to a Confederate soldier, and I, I think it sums up our point well. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for but everything I'd hoped for. Almost despite myself, my prayers were answered. I am, among all men, most richly blessed. We all need, each and every one of us, a garden of Gethsemane, a place where we can go and commune with our Father and acknowledge that we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the strength, we don't have the resources to do all that he's called upon us to do. And so we need to turn ourselves fully and completely over to him and trust in him and realize that we can only serve him when we realize his strength and his blessings in our lives. Now maybe you're here this morning and you don't have that privilege of approaching God as your father. See, we have to realize that even though we're all God's creatures and he's the creator, when we approach God in prayer, we're approaching him as his children in Christ, part of that family of God. So if you've never become part of that family, you don't have that ability to approach the Father. So I want to encourage you today to become part of that family of God. Put your trust in Jesus and turn to God in repentance. Have your sins washed away in baptism. Be added to that people, that family. Be able to go to God in prayer as Father. Maybe you're here this morning and rather than praying as you ought, rather than trusting in God as you ought, you've tried to go it alone. It's a great temptation to all of us. But you need to make changes this morning. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. Jesus is calling